Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 4th, 2021. Today is our second podcast with Dr. Marla Baum, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in child and adolescent neuropsychology. The theme for the week is how our kids learn. Monday, we covered IQs and neuropsychological testing, and today we discuss the controversy over learning disabilities and extended time. This is a very hot topic right now, and I'm sure you'll appreciate Marla's take on it. As I said on Monday, if you have children, or if you might one day have children, you are definitely going to appreciate both podcasts this week. So if you haven't yet heard Mondays, be sure to go back and listen to that one as well. Next week, we will have another parenting week as I'm joined by pediatrician Dr. Tracy Agnesi to talk about newborns. Also, mark your calendars, Thursday, February 18th, which will be the day we drop our first episode of our new podcast, High Risk Birth Stories. More to come on that but I'm very excited. Finally, I want to wish a very happy birthday to my dog, Biscuit, who turns two today. I'm aware that you don't listen to these podcasts, but my love for you is unconditional. Happy birthday. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, we're back with Dr. Marla Baum, who is a child neuropsychologist uh, who was just recently on our podcast talking about uh, her past and how she came to become a, a psychologist and a child psychologist and what neuropsychological testing is and why parents would do it. And we had a really interesting conversation about that. And I said, Marla, we're doing it again. Welcome back. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Excellent. So I just I wanted to jump right in to where we were before. And the first thing I just want to ask you is, all right, so I'm a parent. I'm listening to this. I've got a couple of kids at home. No one's ever mentioned to me anything about neuropsychological testing. My kid seems to be doing okay in school. I don't know. She could be doing better in this or whatever. How would I know? If I need to bring my child to you, is it something that I should be looking for or only just wait if the school mentions something? Who would need to come for this testing if no one told them about it? That's a, that's a great question. If you don't get direct guidance from someone at school or one of the doctors that you take your kids to, if you don't get direct guidance, but you just have a sense that something's off or wrong or something's quote unquote, not clicking, you know, that could often mean that there's something that the child very well may be compensating for up to a certain point. What I tend to find is that a lot of times those kids do hit some sort of wall at some point where it really impacts them. So, you know, you can look at your child's report cards. You can see if there are real peaks and valleys in how they do. Like, for example, if they always do really great in reading, but their math scores are not where at the same level that they should be at. Because, you know, theoretically, a child is supposed to achieve sort of generally the same across domains. So if you see real peaks and valleys in your child's report cards or how they do on statewide standardized tests that they give in the public schools or the ERB tests that they give in the private schools. Um, those are all, those are really good possible indications. I mean, those are really good sources that you can look at to see if there maybe is something going on. 
But, you know, a lot of times parents come in and they just say something's not clicking and they can't articulate it and they're not sure what it is, but they have what I call mommy sense, which is something I learned from another colleague. It's a great term because parents, they usually know their kids really well. And if they see that something's not clicking, that can often mean that there's something going on and it would at least warrant the conversation to see if there's something we need to pursue. Um, The other main thing that parents should look out for is if the child is very distressed about school. There's a lot of, there are a lot of kids out there that will do fine in school, but then they come home and they're weepy or they're anxious or, you know, they're just irritable, not regulating themselves well. Sometimes that's a signal that maybe something is going on for them during their day that's hard for them. And, you know, these kids have to go to school and do all the work, whether they're good at it or not. You don't get to self-select what you want to study until college. So you, you could be, you know, not a strong math student, but yet you still have to push through and you have to go every day and face it and, and do the work. And if that's stressful, that could lead to some, you know, possible anxiety or things like that. So I would look for that also. And then the last thing I would say is if teachers say, you know, they're really distractible, they're really not paying attention, that to me is a real flag that there's something going on. It might not be an attentional issue. The kid can be going through a lot of different things and it would look like an attention issue. There's often times where you come in with a possible attention issue and it's something else entirely. And the child is just trying to deflect the attention off themselves in the classroom by being goofy or impulsive. So, you know, those types of things that just don't seem right, quote unquote, could often really be an indicator that something's going on. Right. Now, if the school has a school psychologist, that would be the first person to turn to, correct? Yeah. Excellent. And if this, yeah, and if the school does not have a school psychologist and parents feel like there isn't a person in the school who is uh, either capable or willing to or whoever has the time to discuss this, then maybe they would seek out someone like you directly. Yes. Um, or, you know, a lot of pediatricians, especially in New York, that, you know, pediatricians, they all have lists of psychologists that they refer to. And the pediatricians are usually really good at teasing out, you know, if this is something real that, you know, might warrant some further evaluation and intervention. So if you don't have someone in the school, either the school psychologist or Sometimes um, the schools will have clinical social workers in, on staff or the head of the learning support services at the school. Those are usually good places to start. But, you know, I, I think the listeners should just know that if your child is in public school, my understanding is that they are really not supposed to recommend something like a neuropsychological evaluation for different political reasons. But besides that, you know, people in in private schools and outside the New York City public schools, I think the schools are much more able to, you know, refer for a neuropsychological evaluation. So if your child's in public school in New York City, I would start with the child study team, you know, whoever is there that's in charge of services for the children in the school. Got it. And then I I was curious what your thoughts were. 
let's let's take cost out of the equation. Let's say this were free. Is there any reason why every child shouldn't have neuropsychological testing? Like, is there a downside to it potentially? Or is it something that like, yeah, it'd be great if every kid got it, but who has the time, who has the money type of thing? Right. So the thing is, is that these evaluations are very comprehensive and they peel apart every skill that the child needs in order to be able to learn. So if you test every child, you are going to see some variability. At some point, there there will be something that will be challenging for them. Now, if there was no reason for a referral, so to speak, there was no presenting problem, it could be good information to have. But, you know, it's sort of like, like those cancer screenings. Like if you're healthy, do you go find the information or do you, you know, live until you have a symptom and then you see what's going on? It's the same, it's the same sort of thing. You know, I've had some parents come in that they just want a good study on who their child is as a learner. And that's completely fine. But if your child's not outwardly having any sort of issue, I don't think it's something you necessarily have to put them through. I mean, the kids will find it mostly very reinforcing. It's, you know, it just ends up being a lot of time out of school. For some people, it's cost prohibitive. So I, I wouldn't recommend it unless there's, you know, a specific issue. Okay. I guess that makes, I guess that makes sense. And what you said before is actually going to lead to my next series of questions. And I think this is such a, an interesting topic. And, you know, all of us who are parents now and are living in the world today, we, we all know that there is a truth that compared to when we were kids, there are so many more kids with diagnoses right now than when, like when we were growing up, no one had anything, right? You're either allergic to peanuts or you weren't. And that was it. Right. 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 And, and now everyone's got something. And so my question is, you know, people look at that differently. Some people say it's great. Some people lament that, you know, everyone's got their own view. But do you think it's it's a function of more testing or is it or have kids actually changed or has the school or the world changed that's sort of bringing these out? Like, why do you think that is? I'm, I'm curious because you're you're in the middle of it. So what do you think? Yeah. So my perspective is like when you and I were growing up, you know, I, I myself got flagged for, you know, some reading comprehension issues. And I remember going to this room in the back of the cafeteria at our school, maybe, and sitting with one of the learning specialists and doing some work on reading comprehension strategies. Yeah, I had the, same, I had the same thing, but it was all behavior. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this kid can read great, but he's a pain in the ass. And so we're going to we got to deal with this behavior. I actually had to go to speech therapy. You know why? Because I talk too much. I needed therapy to tell me to shut up. So when I right, said, right, you know right, what, right, right. I'm going to grow up and I'm going to get a podcast. I'm going to turn this into a strength. There you go. There you go, lady. <laughs> See, it's always about defining your strengths and using them. Uh, not, no joke. I, I talk too much and they sent me to speech therapy. Genius. You know, I think what ended up happening is that there is this piece of legislation called the IDEA Act, the IDEA Act. The IDEA Act basically put into law that schools are required to support children with disabilities, whether they're learning disabilities or medical or physical disabilities. So I think what came out of that is this push to have to document which kids need help and which ones don't, which then, you know, got the psychologists involved because we are the ones who have you know, we have authority over the over the domain of testing. 
So, you know, we have all of these standardized measures. Many of them have been around since the 50s. And of course, they get normed, they get renormed and updated by law, by our ethical code. They have to get updated every 10 years. And, you know, we, and so we had to start to assess kids in order to identify what these learning issues were and, you know, what, what qualifies as a learning disability in terms of a statistical analysis or a clinical interpretation of the data. And then schools became responsible for providing the services. And then over time, it's evolved. And I definitely think, you know, people are more apt to test their kids now and identify what the issues are. But I also find that kids end up feeling more empowered in school because they're actually getting the help that they need. You know, I know plenty of kids, as I think some of them were your friends, maybe, <laughs> in our high school, and definitely some of my friends, that, you know, they definitely had attentional deficits. But when we were growing up, there was nothing to really do about it. Punish them. Punish them. <laughs> right. That really engendered a real sense of shame about these learning issues. And, you know, I'll be sitting in my office with parents and they'll say, yeah, but you know, I got through it. I got through it. And I'll say, well, how did you feel about yourself when you were going through school? And they would say, I I really, I felt very badly about myself. I didn't really feel very effective. So I think that a lot of what we're doing here is really just helping kids realize that there are different ways to learn. And, you know, certain schools are better than others or more able than others to differentiate and individualize for a child what, how they learn. And, you know, it, it's really just to protect their, the kid's self-concept. So you're saying that basically if, if, if we went back in time to when you and I were in elementary school and we tested the same number of kids, we would probably have the same number of diagnoses um, as we have today. Yes. Like, like when it comes to the autism. Right. Community. A lot of people say, well, are there really more kids with autism or are we testing more? My theory is that there's a combination of multiple factors. It could be both. Yeah, I think it's both. You know, when you go looking for things, you find things. Right. It's the general rule of thumb in a lot of what we do. But the idea is, is whatever you find, you know, is it impinging on the child's functioning to a marked degree where you want to intervene so that they don't become unduly stressed, or they don't lose their self-esteem as a learner, as a student. So, you know, we're testing more, but, you know, my personal opinion is that the kids are better for it. Right, um, right. Because they get a sense of who they are as a learner and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are, and they use those strengths to compensate. Maybe some of the discomfort people have with it nowadays, or for those who do have discomfort, is the idea that what you're describing is just sort of variation in how people learn and everyone has strengths and everyone's weaknesses and it's sort of identifying it. But like you said, it sort of has to get labeled as a disability and that calling, you know, someone who's weak in a certain aspect of reading, let's say, to now like label that as disabled. I think some people get uneasy with that concept. Right. When, when we were kids, you know, you weren't disabled, you just, you know, something was harder for you. And it, some of it is semantics, obviously, but I think that, and it's understandable, you're saying, because you need to have that label in order to qualify for services. And this, there's like reasons to have that label. But I think that maybe some of the language that's used is why there's a disconnect maybe between the people who think it's a good thing versus people who think it's a bad thing. That's interesting. So yeah, I have a couple of comments on that. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of people our age, a lot of parents out there that 
think that there's a real stigma to being labeled. Now, in my experience, the only reason I use diagnoses per se is for insurance purposes Mm -hmm. and applications to special schools because they need to sort of know on a broad level what types of applicants they're getting. Otherwise, it's more about what are the child's strengths, what are the child's weaknesses, what is getting in their way of achieving, and how can we overcome it? The labels themselves I agree with you. They're mostly semantic. And a lot of parents are worried about the label per se. But when they see their child get the support that they need, stress about the stigma starts to melt away because the child is happier and they're achieving and they feel productive and they feel effective when they're going to school every day. Yeah, I don't see the kids as as, as finding the stigma. I mean, I look at, you know, my kids, our kids are all varying ages and them and all their friends, they're all very open about this. No, it's not a stigma yeah. for the kids. It's only a stigma it's for the parents, exactly. right? Exactly. We're, the, we're, the, we're, the, we're the ones who need the remediation because we're all the crazy ones. I mean, all the kids, <laughs> the kids are very open and they're, they, they, yeah. they're very, yeah. I don't want to say happy, but I think that they do feel some sort of validation that, yeah, there's a reason I'm struggling. This is the reason I'm working on it. And they're, they're quite open with each other typically about all of these. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because every now and then, there will be a parent in my office that even if they have their own mixed feelings about what's going on with their child, they can usually put that aside and still do what they need to do for their kid. And if they have their own feelings about it, you know, we can address that. You know, sometimes I'll talk to the parents two or three times after the testing is done because they just need some help sort of coming to accept this, right? I really worry about the parents that can't put their own feelings about it aside and just do what they need to do for their kid and because of their own block, because there's something that they're worried about in terms of the stigma. So, but again, it doesn't happen that often, but unfortunately I have seen it happen and it's, it's sad for me to see the parents that are open about their feelings about the stigma and whatever the implications are of the results of the testing, as long as they're open about it and they can put it aside in order to give their kid what they need, though those are that that's the best way for parents to cope with it. Right. And I think yeah. and I think one of the interesting things, and this is something that I learned from from my wife, you know, Michal and her in her professional sort of experience, is that a lot of this sometimes is also just a function of the environment. And what I mean by that is you know, you can have a child who has, you know, uh, an average or high average or, you know, a totally normal IQ and testing in this, but it's only difficult when they're put in a very competitive and right. challenging school system, right. right? Sometimes you go to school and they expect, you know, whether it's a dual curriculum or longer hours or they really push the kids. And so for that child in that school, it's going to seem like he or she has, you know, quote unquote, a disability. But if they go to a different school where they're sort of learning at the same level, they're going to achieve and, you know, feel great about themselves. And exactly. so, and, and that's a choice the parents have to make what school they yes. want their child in. Yes. I've had that conversation with multiple families over the years, but there's actually nothing wrong with your child. They're just being asked to achieve two and three grade levels above what developmentally they're supposed to be doing. So uh, some colleagues of mine have coined the term um, a curriculum disability, (laughs) that there's not that there's anything wrong with the child. It's just the school is pushing them to, to achieve two and three years ahead of what their brains are supposed to be doing. 
And therefore, there's a problem. Right. It, right. I guess someone doesn't get through Navy SEAL training. It doesn't mean they're out of shape. It just means they can't right. get through Navy SEAL training. Like that's, you know, exactly. most normal people can't. Exactly. I also wanted to touch on, and it's in the same conversation, obviously, uh, is extra time. Right. And I know this comes up all the, all the time. And yeah. the idea that certain children based on either testing with someone like you or for whatever reason, qualify to get extra time when they take tests in school or on standardized tests or for projects or other yeah. what we call accommodations. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can you just sort of explain you know, how does that work? Who who gets those? Who qualifies for those? Why would someone qualify versus not qualify? And then we'll talk about sort of all of the meta conversation about this afterwards. You know, this is a controversial topic, a really hot topic. Again, Marla, of that's, why, that's why we're here, man. This podcast, <laughs> we're doing it. The thing is about extended time. Some kids are deserving of extended time because of learning issues that they have. Some kids are deserving of extended time because of emotional issues that they have. I think the biggest issue that has really muddied the waters in this field, in this particular issue with extended time, is that, and it's really, it's really the Board of Ed, whether in New York or New Jersey, I've seen it constantly in New Jersey also, that no matter what a child is presenting with in elementary school that might necessitate an evaluation and some services, they always get extended time as, as just part of the package from the Board of Education. So what ends up happening is that all of these kids that maybe don't need it are granted it. You know, kids with ADHD, so to speak, uh, for example. They, uh, you know, the Board of Ed, like in Bergen County, for example, where I also have an office and where I, I live, the Board of Ed automatically gives extended time to any kid that presents with a problem. And a lot of times the kids don't need extended time, and that's not what's going on. And that's not what's going to help them. But they are now slated as deserving of it. And so that ends up being a problem when a kid comes along with a real learning disability and also needs it. And it breeds a lot of tension and competition amongst the parents. Well, why does your kid have extended time? Why does my kid not? You know, could my kid benefit from it? The idea about extended time is that you can give kids all the time in the world. And if they don't do any better on whatever the task is, even with extra time, then they're not deserving of extended time. That's, that's my clinical opinion. Unfortunately, this, this issue has gotten really murky and yucky because the Board of Education is just giving it to every kid that has any sort of issue. In my opinion, if your child does okay on a time test, but with extended time does better, that to me is something to potentially pursue because with extended time, they were able to do better. Whereas like, let's take the SAT. Let's take the reading comprehension portion of the SAT. If you're a bright child, but you can't finish within the time and with extra time you finish and you're able to show what you can do, then I think that makes you a candidate for extended time. Whereas you might have someone that finishes and 
they might not benefit from getting extended time. Those kids should not be getting extended time. But why would they want extended time? I mean, why would it be an issue if they're granted extended time if it doesn't help them? Well, that that's exactly the issue for me. If, if extended time doesn't help a child, then that's not what the child's issue is, and they shouldn't be getting it. This is a really... I mean, as you said, it's a hot topic. I, I, I always tell my kids, like, based on the number of kids have extra time, I think it'd be easier to just give everybody more time and take the few yes. kids who are really high achievers and give them less time. Right. Say, you, right. you, you qualify for less time. You're, right. <laughs> you know, exactly. you get to finish quickly. But exactly, I, yeah. like, what is this issue right. of time? Right. Well, why think, are yeah. we? Yeah. Why do we care so much? I, I think exactly. that there's, yeah, I think that there's two sort of separate issues, and I think one issue is sort of the, you know the the ethics of it and sort of the idea of who has access to this and maybe some kids get it because their parents paid for testing and another kid got it because their parents a little more savvy about it or another kid got it because they went to a psychologist who's more lenient about you know recommending it and so there is this sort of idea of like justice like maybe that there's an unfair distribution of which kids get it and which kids don't get it. And that's its own conversation. And I think it's a problem, but that's its own conversation. But I think there's a second conversation about even if it were completely fair, so to speak, like all those problems were, you know, solved. Just the idea of why do we care how much time it takes? Like for for most tasks that we have to do in life, you're not timed. And so it seems to me like, why wouldn't all tests be untimed unless you're being tested for something that needs to be done quickly. So for example, like if I were to do a, uh, like an aptitude test for doctors, you know, doing something quickly would really only matter if they're going to become like a trauma surgeon or an emergency room physician. Whereas if they're going to become a radiologist or pathologist, who cares if it takes more time? Like why, like what's the difference? Or, you know, someone's going to law school. If you're a trial attorney, you probably have to think on your feet quicker than if you're a tax attorney. And so right. for the first, you definitely need to know who can do it quickly. And for the latter, you don't care. And so I think that the you know, tests have been timed, I think, for logistical purposes. You like you need to have some sort of time limit. Otherwise, kids will sit there all day. But right. but the fact that like like exactly who cares? Just let everyone have extra time. I agree with you completely. The only profession that you really need to be fast are exactly what you said, trauma doctors air traffic controllers. Right. You don't pilots. want anyone with extra time in that job. <laughs> right. You don't want a full processor who's controlling the air traffic over JFK. So this issue of time has come up because we have these standardized tests. And, you know, so some kid, what happens is that kids with dyslexia can't read quickly. So they're at an actual disadvantage because they can't finish because of their dyslexia. And then if they can't finish and they don't score as well, that can have implications for where they get into high school, where they get into college and, and whatnot. So this was born out of, this whole thing was born out of a really, really legitimate issue, which is that kids with learning disabilities and sometimes with language processing issues are really at a disadvantage in these situations because they don't work quickly. They they need more time. But they're not at a disadvantage sort of for other things, meaning that, that the test that they're using as the gatekeeper is the disadvantage. Correct. But they can do just as well when they get into college because they have time to do stuff. Yeah. And, but I know. do also find that these kids, they do need some help in terms of figuring out where to spend their time what to focus on, where to cut corners. Like there there are some things that they need to know for their life. If they're going to be a trial attorney, 
they're going to need a lot of help with time management right. so that they're not up all night writing their, you know, the briefs and whatever. So the issue, it's gotten very muddy because, you know, almost any medical doctor can write a letter saying, please give the child extended time because of A or B or C. And because of the Individual Disability Educational Act, the IDEA Act, if there is a documented disability, they have to grant it. They have to grant it. Yeah, they have to grant it. And and sometimes it's very legitimate. Um, it can be, you know, a, a child that has like a traumatic brain injury and all the, you know, all of a sudden needs extended time because they're going to get headaches and, and have other sort of symptoms if they're pushed too hard. You know, those situations all, you know, they all make sense. But I, I agree with you. It's, it's, there are very few things that we actually need to do quickly in this world. Right. I, I have a I have a friend who works for the college board and the college board oversees, you know, SATs and, you know, AP tests. And I asked him this question. I said, like, what's the deal? And he said, he said, for us, we'd be perfectly fine making the SAT unlimited time. He's like, we don't really care how much time people have. He said, it's purely yeah. logistical. He said, because if, you know, you're talking about, you know, a million plus people are taking this test. And if you and if the test is all day, you need to have twice as much time proctored. Right. So that yeah. costs money. And you're gonna have to probably provide lunch <laughs> for kids. And he said <laughs> right. he said it's it's a big deal to double the time of the test or triple the time yeah. of the test. It may have to be over several days. And he goes, It's a tremendous cost. And it's and he said, and that's right now the main reason they don't which is why they're very, I don't want to say lax, but they don't fight too much the extra time because it's not like they care from an educational perspective. It's just right. it has to be as do you and so, and it's interesting. I think a lot of people recognize this, but like in school, how would you do that? How would you say, okay, you have a math test, take as much time as you want. Well, like, well, I got chemistry in 45 minutes. I need to finish. And I think that there's a lot of logistics that have to be worked out in order to do that. And maybe we just have to change how we assess kids. I don't know. Maybe. You know, I've also told many parents that, you know, they come in thinking the child needs extended time. And I'll say, you know, based on the results, that's not what's going to help your child. What's actually going to help your child in their life is to actually learn how to take a test in a more organized way. Right. There's other strategies besides extended time. You know, everyone just thinks, oh, you have all the time in the world, you can do it. It's not the case right. for a lot of kids. You can have all the time in the world, but if you don't know how to take a test, you're not going to do well no matter what. Right. So it's not it's not this panacea that everyone thinks it is. Good word. I like that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's not a panacea. It doesn't it doesn't solve all the problems. And if you ask me, it can it can actually train kids to not be efficient. Right. It is important to be efficient in this world, no matter what we do. You know, you have to you have to be able to do things quickly enough because we don't always have the luxury of all the time in the world. You know, it's a little bit different than what we were just saying, but you know, it's not necessarily always going to be so great for the kid to have the extended time. Right. I mean, it's obviously somewhere in the middle of those two. You don't want to, you can't take forever to do things, but you shouldn't always be pressured for time. It's sort of that, exactly. that balance. Do you find in your, just in your clinical, uh, you know, work and in your experience, do you find a lot of parents who are trying to game the system or do you think that just this is the system and that's how it sort of, that's how the chips fall? I have definitely encountered parents that try to game the system. I have encountered parents where I, where I recommend that they don't need it, but yet the school grants it two weeks later, and I don't know why. You know, um, there are definitely parents that try to game the system, and they're not helping. 
They're not helping the situation. I can't blame them because, you know, parents want to do whatever they can do to support their child's success. So the, the intentions are usually good, but it doesn't actually help their child. I'm thinking of one case in particular. He didn't need it. He didn't need it. I told him he didn't need it. It wasn't recommended in the report, but I don't know what they said to the school or whatnot. And the kid got it. And I think the kid's going to be worse off for it because he's not actually learning anything about, you know, how to be more effective, how to be more efficient. So I definitely think parents game the system, especially in New York City. You know, I think there's a lot of competition. You know, Manhattan is a very unique place. Um, in terms of education for children. And, you know, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of wealth and that can lead to some real, you know, discrepancies or lack of accessibility, like what you were saying before. Um, I'm sure there are parents that have written checks to schools in order to get their kids what they want for them. You know, it's, it's, it happens. Most of the time it's legitimate and most of the times the parents you know, they really just want to know what is it that's going on. And it's not, you know, if they get extended time or not, as long as they know what's going on and what the child needs, you know, then it usually works out fine. I just think it's so fascinating. And because so many people talk about this. And like I said before, I think it's fascinating because on the one hand, there's, there's the issue of, you know, whether it's being done fairly, for lack of a better term. And that's, that's a huge issue. And people talk about that and argue about that. But again, I just think on on a higher level, there's this I, this idea we're talking about of whether it's even appropriate to have this metric on tests well, of, right. of finishing it in a certain amount of time, and and maybe right. in some instances it is the right thing to do, and in some instances it's not the right thing to do. And I think that you know we've been you know the way my kids take tests is the same way we took tests, and you got to right. think something's we've learned something since we were kids, right? And maybe right. maybe that has to change in how we. Right view evaluations right. and assessments and testing in general. And even if you want to change on the third level, how do you do it? Like practically, it's well, very like, hard. Like, let, let me, I'll give you one example of like a, to, to compare two different situations. So child number one has a significant dyslexia, very, very difficult to decode, very disfluent when they can decode. That type of child, I feel very strongly should get extra time because they would be at an undue disadvantage because they just can't get through the test fast enough versus child number two who has an anxiety disorder, who is so obsessive about every question that they're doing and that's what's causing them to run out of time. I do not think that type of child should get extended time because all that's going to do is give the child the chance to ruminate and obsess more. And from an anxiety disorder standpoint, that's the exact opposite of what you want to do for the child. So that child, I would not recommend extended time. I would recommend therapy to learn how to contain their anxiety so they, they don't get into an obsessive loop in the middle of a test. Then there are some clinicians and some schools that feel, and that's like a cultural thing. Some schools feel they don't want the kid under such distress and they would rather give them the extended time so that they stay calm and they don't have a panic attack, you know, but I think there's room. I think there's room to work with the school in that instance and, you know, come up with a way to assess the child while you're trying to, you know, 
teach them how to not ruminate and obsess over each test question and eat up all their time. So, you know, that's just one example of how it can be really appropriate versus really not appropriate. But, you know, sometimes it's about the school personnel and what they think. And sometimes it's literally about the numbers. And if the, the school already has, you know, too many kids for their quota and getting extended time, then maybe they would have to say no. You know, it, it, there's like there's so many factors involved. And it's, it, I agree with you. It really might be this sort of self-induced, you know, sort of thing, because for most things in life, you can have more time. There are very few jobs where you just have to be so fast. So why are we why are we valuing speed so much? You can be the fastest person in the world, but if you can't learn, then like what's the point that you can do it quickly? Right. It would seem to me that the ideal sort of stand if you're going to do a standardized test and there's reasons to say not to do them, but let's say you're going to do them is to sort of have like, you know, let's say four sections, you know, one, you know, one is reading, one is math, one is let's say whatever logic or something and the fourth one is speed. And so you get right. assessed on all four and Okay. And so kids know, like there's certain things I do well and, you know, cause I'm not timed and there's other things, you know, in terms of speed where I don't function. Other kids function very well in speed, but maybe not with the others. And it just seems like it's another measure of, you know, how they're going to perform. And when they get shuffled together, you have to, we spend all this time trying to separate them apart yeah. because we put them together to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, actually on the IQ test, it is separate. Those are two of the five factors. One of them is processing speed. Another one is, you know, your actual abilities in the verbal domain. And yeah, they're different. They're different cognitive functions. So if you ask me, you know, we shouldn't be worrying about speed so much unless it's from like an efficiency standpoint, like a logistical issue, like what your friend at the college board was saying. Right. You know, only if the child, like I, for example, I am a slow processor. I'm a slow reader. I, you just can't, you know, I knew that I couldn't go into a profession that I have to read very quickly. I would not be able to do that. You know, if you don't have good spatial skills, you shouldn't be an architect. You know, if you don't have good hand-eye coordination, you're going to have the trouble being an athlete. You know, it's, to me, it's more about learning who you are and what you can do. And this time issue has really all it's really done is engender a lot of stress and a lot of tension. And it should really, in my opinion, be reserved for those kids with significant learning challenges that it's just not fair to ask them to read as quickly as some, as the kid that doesn't have an issue reading quickly. Because what are you measuring? Are you measuring speed or are you measuring ability? I think that goes back to what you're saying. You know, what are these tests really about? You have to be fast in order to have an ability. Marla, that's awesome. You're you're the best. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so glad to I'm so glad to know you. Oh, this feeling is incredibly mutual. Wonderful. For sure. Well, for th- sure. thank you so much for coming on and spending all this time you're talking welcome. to me. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Wonderful. So, Marla, you are a, a psychologist. You practice on the Upper West Side and in Creskill, New Jersey, and you have yeah. a website which is www drmarlabaum.com. That's D-R-M-A-R-L-A-B-A-U-M.com. And obviously, if anyone's local and wants to see you, they can find you through your website. And uh, I obviously look forward to seeing you around town. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for having me, Nady. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. 
To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.